This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is another in our series of Fireside Chats. I'm Bob Walker, I'm chair of the Department of Medicine. Uh, my voice does not normally sound like Clint Eastwood, so apologize for that, but uh, getting over a cold. Thrilled to be here with uh, Esteban Burchard who is a professor in the Department of Engineering and Therapeutic Sciences, which is actually in the School of Pharmacy, but he has a secondary appointment in in the Department of Medicine, so we proudly claim him as one of our own. Uh, And Esteban is really a uh, world-renowned researcher in genomics and precision medicine, uh, areas around disparities, asthma. We'll get into all of that, uh, but uh, also has really an extraordinary life story. So uh, part of the reason I wanted this opportunity talk to you, Esteban, was uh, to hear really about both. So thank you for, for joining thank us Thank you today. for having me. Uh, so let me start off with something cryptic, but uh, I think this will become uh, obvious why I'm asking. Uh, tell us about the meaning of Falls City, Nebraska. Falls City, Nebraska. Um, ancestry, someone found me on Ancestry.com and asked if I was related to someone by the name of uh, Burchard. And um, I've known that I had some sort of history um, and after a little more digging, um, I found out um, that I come from a long line of physicians, uh, three generations of physicians dating from the 1850s, started in uh, upstate New York, Buffalo, moved to Nebraska um, in the 1870s and started a hospital in 1880. And it was financially kicked off in 1920, and they had the 100-year centennial um, this past October. So your family comes basically through a long line of people involved in medicine through Falls City, Nebraska, and you found out about it because somebody looked you up on Ancestry.com and contacted you. That's, That's pretty, exactly right. Pretty amazing. Um, and I saw that going way back, uh, your family tree begins with, uh, <clears throat> this may have been great-great-great-great-grandfather or something, but someone from Germany and somebody from England. Yes, and yet I know a big part of your identity is a, as a Mexican American, and you've done a lot of your time studying uh, uh, disparities and diversity and issues like that. So, when did that connection get made from sort of the European part of your family and the, uh, the Latino part of your family? So, I was raised Mexican uh, by a single mom, and if I know the answer, I did it on Twenty Three and Me and Ancestry. I'm twenty six percent Native American. African, and the rest is European. So I knew that most Mexicans have a significant amount of European as well as indigenous populations. Known that going forward for many years, um, probably as far back as 2003, uh, but the fall city was a surprise. And so tell us about your your upbringing. I understand you grew up in San Francisco in the Mission District. Uh, Tell us about being raised here. So continuing with the Fall City, my father was orphaned at the age of six, given up for adoption, and uh, worked on a farm. In uh, Nebraska? In Nebraska. Uh And that was during the Depression, uh, and was drafted in World War II, served as a pharmacist in World War II, uh, and came out to California and met my mother. Um, My mother was uh, passed away, Mexican farm worker, didn't speak English, learned English, and uh, at the time there was a big push for assimilation, so she married my father. Uh, they were separated by the time I was seven. So, What was your father's ancestry? Uh, European. Uh-huh. That's all I really knew okay. until this past April. Um, raised in the Mission District, San Francisco. My mom was a school teacher, so hard to raise five kids on a school teacher's salary in the Mission. And the Mission District at the time was incredibly diverse, uh, racially segregated, um, very poor population, and great culture, great environment, great weather, uh, lots of gangs. And so my mother was very cognizant of that and uh, had a network of women that helped raise me to keep me away from gangs. What does that mean, a network of women who raised you? What, what did everybody actually do? Did they take shifts and... And, and, and how she set out to be sure that you didn't fall in with the gangs. What was her strategy? Well, um, early on, um, 
she had other women would take me to a baseball game. They would take me to events and things that normally a father would do. Uh, one family took me in, in particular, a Chinese family. They had two sons, one older and younger than me. And for about four years, I was with them. Um, even went to Chinese school here in Chinatown to learn Cantonese. Uh, and that, that was an interesting experience, very interesting. And then um, I still needed a father figure. And so um, I was being bused from the Mission District, all Latino and African-American, to an all-white high school in the Sunset and um, was subsequently kicked out for fighting. <laughs> I landed in inner city high How school. How old were you then? I was a freshman. Freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom's a school teacher, so it was a big embarrassment to her. Mm-hmm. I apologize. Uh, but I found uh, in inner city school, I found wrestling. And uh, there was a young college coach uh, right out of college that brought a really national-level program to an inner city high school. And we went on to the state meet, and I went on to continue and wrestle in college. Um, and so that became my discipline. And... Uh, I did really well. I took a state placer, took second in California. Uh, in college, my coach was African-American on the 84 and 88 Olympic team, uh, getting a PhD. So I had great role models, and my study partner was African-American, NCAA finalist. So I could not have asked for better role models. And that discipline merged with my passion for science. It um, really allowed me to focus and, and run with it. So was so here you are growing up as a poor kid in the mission in a racially segregated environment with a single mother, one of five kids, and you're, I imagine when you got kicked out for fighting, this was your mom's nightmare, that, the, yeah. that this was part of your loss, you know, part of the gangs. What did she say to you? And, and do you remember the, do you remember the incident? Um, well, I St. Ignatius, which is at the time was all white male school, uh, they had a tradition of beating me up or fighting, starting to fight every day. But wow. I fought back incredibly, and so it was it was terrible. I'd take a bus from the Mission District, go to Sunset, have fights, come home, and then you know there's gangs, and it was just a terrible situation. Um, I remember being kicked out, and my mom almost washing her hands of me. Uh, and just saying, you know, I'm disappointed. Um, and as a teacher, and as she, at the time she was an assistant pr- principal, it was a big embarrassment for her. I'll bet. Did you find wrestling? In, I mean, were you looking for an antidote? Were you looking for something? Or was she looking for you to settle you down and give you something to sort of uh, focus your energies on? Or how did that actually happen? The mission district was crazy at the time. There are lots of gangs. Um, uh, there's white flight, so the tax base was low. My best friend in high school was murdered uh, when he was 14. Um, and I saw myself heading down this path, and not by my own choice, but by uh, being a product of a bad environment. Um, I started wrestling to learn how to defend myself, um, and it turned out to be a wonderful thing I lost about 80 pounds and uh, was a state or league champion and went to the state meet and um, we were had a great team and and wrestling is a blue collar sport so all you needed is a pair of shoes and I finally got to meet Olympians national champions that looked like me that had my same story Um, and regardless of your socioeconomic status or your race the wrestling mat is flat so it's an even playing field. Yeah. And then where did the... So that may explain discipline and the fact that you're channeling your energy and what might have gone into fighting into something more productive. How about the academic side of you? Where'd that come from? Well, I was always academically gifted. I was um, at a magnet high school. My mom was a school teacher. I was always interested in biology and science, and I started off as a biology major in college. Um, Where'd you go to college? San Francisco State University. And the, I only applied to two colleges, uh, UC Santa Cruz and San Francisco State. You wanted to stay. Did you feel like you needed to stay locally? Um, that wasn't really an option. Uh-huh. You know, that wasn't, I didn't have any good role models to 
look up to? Did you have any role models in science, biology, medicine, now that you've discovered half your family was doctors, but you didn't know that at no, the time, right? No, no, no. So you had no role models who were no. professionals? No. The only role models I had were, my, as I said, my father figure, who was on the 84 Olympic team getting a PhD, and my study partners. Hmm. And, and that's hard to believe now, and I, I feel sorry for kids that don't have role models. Uh, but the other role models I was meeting were national champions and really disciplined um, Olympic gold medalist. Um, and, and that's something I, you couldn't put a price on. Did you ever think of doing pro wrestling? No, no. I, well, pro is at the time was uh, what people jumping off the yes, tables. No, right, no, exactly. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> that wasn't no, going to be your no, thing. No, no, no. All right, so you go to college and you just have a passion for and you're good at biology yeah. and all that. Did you find that you were, were you at a disadvantage given your prior experiences in the schooling or you felt like you'd gotten a pretty good education through it all and you hit college, you were able to hit the ground running in college? Uh, it was tough my freshman year. Um, I was still, I was working to help pay my way through school and wrestling. Um, once I, I found a UCSF medical student who found me um, and he started mentoring me um, but how, did, how did he find you? Through one of the pre-med conferences huh. that was hosted here at UCSF. His name is Francis Felix. And um, he uh, advised me all along. He said, you know, no one looks at how long you go to school for. Uh, we do look at your grades and MCATs. And so San Francisco State was relatively inexpensive at the time. Um, and I could get scholarships from wrestling. And I was able to slow it down. And having a slower pace allowed me to really <coughs> excel, not only athletically, but academically. And um, I met my wife of 34 years uh, in the library. So there's, there's three of us, my wife and my study partner, who's an NCAA finalist, who was brainwashing me to think that I could do anything. Mm. And, and, you know, part of being the pre-med is a lot of psychological baggage goes along with that of insecurities, can I do it, can I not? And here I am, I have an Olympian and a national champion saying, you could do it, you could do it. So I never hung out with pre-meds, and I'd just walk into my exam and sit at the front and walk out and wouldn't let any pre-meds talk to me. And that strategy started working. And um, at the time, a beautiful experiment happened in San Jose, California, called the Frozen Addict where there's LSD that was laced, contaminated, and overnight patients were getting Parkinson's disease, mm -hmm. Parkinson-like syndrome. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was taking organic chemistry, um, and it was, it was all O-chem. And it was like, so like, so like Walter White, right? This I, is amazing. Breaking Bad. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, that it was all chemistry. And then that's, I, I knew that's where I wanted to go. So you were, it sounds like you were initially pretty intimidated by the pre-med thing and other kids. I would are, not because I never allowed myself to be because around you, the pre -meds. Your 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 friend gave you confidence that you could do it, and yeah. you sort of sequestered yourself off. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the wrestling was partly kind of your main confidence builder that you could oh, make yeah. it in something really hard. I didn't need external validation. You know, when you wrestle, you only pair, put on a pair of shoes, and you're out there in front of a thousand people, and you either you you are either the winner or the loser. Yeah. Did you have a signature move? Were you uh, uh, something you were known for? Uh, yeah, I, I did. I was known for... I don't want you to demonstrate it on me, by the way. Was, but I was known for... Uh, th my, my coach was on the uh, Greco-Roman team, so I was known for throws. And um, in the U.S. Olympic trials in Vegas, I uh, threw a four-time NCAA champion on his back, and it was, it was absolutely amazing. That sounds, sounds like fun. <laughs> Okay, so you're in. So you do the pre-med thing, and and you also got a PhD at the time, or you no. got an MD PhD. How did that work? So Stanford had a, a medical sciences program, uh, not an MDP, not an MSTP, but a program um, where you could place out of courses uh, the first two years of the um, preclinical curriculum and work in a research lab. So mm -hmm. instead of going four years, I worked for. Went to school for five. I worked three years in the lab. Um, and that was um, a great experience. I was learning by osmosis translational research. It was a lab with three PIs. The head PI was Carol Clayberger, 
who is a hardcore, basic immunogeneticist. Uh, Jim Theodore was a pulmonologist, transplant physician. Von Starnes was a transplant surgeon. And what we were looking at is we were getting biopsies of the lung, heart, lungs, and trying to correlate gene expression in the organ, the allograft, to gene expression patterns in the blood to see if we could predict what was going on in the blood without having to do a biopsy. So Mm -hmm. I didn't appreciate it, but I was learning translational research. Whenever a patient would come in, they'd call me, I get a clinical history, I get the blood, take it to the lab, um, do the gene expression analysis. When they got the biopsies of the allograft, I do gene expression to look for correlations. And what drew you to that that part of the research world, both in terms of the pulmonary piece and then the genomics and the translational? What was exciting about that? This is pre-email. So I remember I applied to 20 labs, put my CV in. None of them know out there that there was a time pre-email, but there actually was, yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not. I, I, I don't know what we all did with our time, right? I know. <laughs> it's hard, to, hard to imagine. I uh, put my CV under 20 doors, and uh, I, I only got one response, and it was by Jim Theodore. He was a former wrestler at Pittsburgh, and he said, you know, I, I see your application, and I saw that you wrestled and did well. You're a good scientist, and um, I'm going to be in your corner and give you a shot. Hmm. And that's how I got my lucky break. So it wasn't that you really set out to look at genomics or do pulmonary or any of that. Well, it was I, I the, applied to the genetics lab. To so the genetics lab. Yeah. So this was one of, but one of one of them, one out of twenty, chose you. And it, did it feel? Did they think they were taking a risk on you in part because of your background, or what? What do you think was the obstacle to the other nineteen? Um, uh, first off, coming from San Francisco State University, mm-hmm. uh, I remember being the anatomy table. My, you know the total of six of us, yeah. and my classmate, who ended up later being my roommate, said, um, how'd you get in? <laughs> and he was from Harvard, and so I got a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, how'd you feel about that? Oh, I felt pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now I know that you could buy your way into Stanford. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now I know that he might have had a back door. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to leave that in the tape. I, uh, all right. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel like you had to prove yourself? Oh, definitely. More than, more than the other folks? Yeah. You know, um, Stanford had a class of 86, and there were six minority students. And the first day of the, the first quarter of the school year, uh, the class president um, uh, published an article claiming that Stanford was flagrantly admitting in minority students that were underqualified. And we all looked at each other and thought, oh, that's us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, um, you know, when, when a guy like me goes down to 158 pounds, um, that's, that's tough. So I knew that I could do it. I knew that I could work hard. Um, I would Meaning not. You had to get to, that was what you had to get down to for wrestling. No, no, yeah, that's what, yeah. I, that's what I wrestled. So you, you could, you, you knew you could sort of, uh, manage a tough challenge I, I like grin, that. And that's, the way you, that's the way you took that kind of comment that Stanford, oh, yeah. that yeah. I'm going to be better than everybody? Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in a library. Mm. And I hung out with people that were like-minded. That's um, where you met your wife, right? No, I met her in college. But in the library? Yes. So it sounds like this has worked for you. It has worked. <laughs> it has worked. <laughs> Living in the library. Um, yeah. I made library my home. And yeah. um, I, I'm not going to say I was the smartest guy, but I was the hardest working. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so you went there to do an MD and a PhD? Uh, no, it was, it was called the Medical Scholars Program. So, uh, one, so, one first, then the other? No, it's, um, you didn't get a PhD, but you, I spent three years in the lab. Oh, I see, okay. And when you finished, what was the career that you thought you wanted to have? I was confused. I was passionate about health equity and health disparities. I lived it. I've seen it. Coming from the Mission District, being a patient at San Francisco General, that was a big driver of what I wanted to do. But I always wanted to be a basic scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, getting trained by Paul Berg, who won the Nobel Prize for genetics, and having role models like a Paul Farmer, who was into social equity, I could not figure out how to merge this. And I, I graduated from Stanford with, uh, as a medical student with two publications, and was fortunate enough to get into the Brigham Women's Hospital 
Um, and there I found great mentorship. I found wonderful mentorship. Um, and Marsha Wolf, the former program director, introduced me to Jeff Drazen, who is, was the, uh, until recently, the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, Jeff asked me to think about asthma, and I, he gave me a book, and I said, I read it over the weekend, and I said, you know, thank you, Dr. Drazen, but no thank you. And he put his hand in me, and he said, son, I think you're making a big mistake. What was, he, what was the question about? He wanted me to study asthma. Oh, study asthma. Genetics. And he said, I have a project where you can look at the genetics of asthma severity between blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, sure. I took a year off, worked with Jeff. And because of all my previous genetics training at Stanford, I, I hit the ground running. And uh, we identified a gene associated with asthma severity that was 40% more prevalent in African Americans. And for the first time in my career, I could really see how I can merge personal passion with academic rigor. I thought, God, everyone's talking about these health disparities as being access to care, but here we have biologic proof that might contribute to part of the puzzle. Hmm. And we had just had a baby, and uh, you know, I had just finished being on call Q3 for two years, and working in a lab was easy. And mm-hmm. I could not stop working. It was like falling in love. You know, when you fall in love, you, you can't think, you can't sleep, you can't eat. And I could not stop working. And by the time I completed my residency, I had a first author publication, and we had an NIH grant. Um, because the Center for Disease Controls published this abstract of asthma prevalence and mortality in Hispanics across the United States. And they said that if you're Hispanic and live in the Northeast, prevalence and mortality is threefold higher than if you're Hispanic and live in the Midwest, the South, and the West. Being Mexican myself, having grown up in California, having lived in the East Coast, having this interleukin Ford African data that we had, I said to Jeff, this is admixture. So African gene coming through the Puerto Rican population. We need to study Puerto Ricans versus Mexicans. Jeff uh, thought that was a great idea. He put me in front of the director of the NHLBI, and the three-minute elevator speech worked. I said, this is what we got to do. And uh, that was in April of my senior year. We wrote a grant. And by the time I graduated from as a resident, we had $1.2 million supplemental funding to start off my study called The Genetics of Asthma in Latino Americans. It sounded like the finding a clinical area <coughs> paired with at least a high probability you thought that there were, dis- there were clinical disparities and maybe some interesting and important sort of chemical or, or genetic explanations important. Why asthma in particular? Asthma is, um, to be honest, I wasn't really interested in the physiology of asthma. But what is fascinating about asthma it is, the, it, number one, it's the most common chronic disease of children. Number two, it's the one disease that has tremendous racial and ethnic disparities. In the United States, depending upon which data you look at, prevalence in Puerto Ricans is 36%, Mexicans is 4%, mm. whites are 12%. Um, and that, if, if to be very conservative, prevalence for Puerto Ricans, for children, with current asthma is 18%. Mexicans still four. So I was fascinated with the fact that here you have two Hispanic groups on the extremes of the tail of the prevalence and mortality distribution, and no one's studying them. Mm. And uh, Jeff showed these data, and this is where diversity helps. People were looking at the same data I was looking at, and within one minute I said it's Puerto Rican versus Mexican. And what is it about Puerto Ricans and Mexicans in terms of their lineage that, that that clicked in your brain? So the average Mexican in the United States is 50% uh, indigenous, and the rest is European, maybe 4% African. Mm -hmm. The average Puerto Rican is 25% African, 16% indigenous, and the rest is European. There's a lot of variation. And the type of indigenous ancestry differs between the two populations. So you would have seen... Some people would have seen those disparities and say there's something different in the environment in the two places, and you immediately said there's something different about the genetic makeup yeah. and the predisposition to the disease, and, 
and you can sort of sort out the environmental by looking, I guess, at Mexicans and Puerto yep. Ricans living side by side in the same in the same environment. Except they don't live side by side. They don't live side by side, so you have to sort of sort that out. Okay, so you finish your residency, and you had this amazing experience and a great role model, and somehow you make your way here. So why? Yeah. So the match was different back then. You you, you apply two years in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, I and this is a match for pulmonary, pulmonary fellowship. Yes. Okay. Um, I I love my experience at the Brigham. I loved my mentorship with Marshall and, and Jeff. Um, I I had a, a gnawing hole in my gut that uh, I needed to come to UCSF to diversify my clinical training. I did two sub-I's here. I wanted to come to UCSF uh, at San Francisco General, uh, one in the emergency room and one on 5A, which was the AIDS ward and uh, Ward 86. Uh, That was in 1994. And uh, I was so blown away with what I saw. And... um, I knew that I was getting great clinical training, great exposure at the Brigham, but I also knew that in my three years there, um, I saw probably three HIV cases, uh, maybe one tuberculosis case. And I've always put my education as my top priority. And so I said to myself, I I couldn't sleep at night knowing that if I didn't come to UCSF, I wouldn't be a great clinician. Hmm. And um, despite my successes, the publications, the $1.2 million grant, I came to UCSF. I turned down a nice offer to stay, a seven-year contract to stay with um, Jeff Drazen and uh, um, a um, bonus package, and I came here to be a fellow. And it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just to be closer to your family. It was no. really the breadth of the clinical training, and particularly the county, was the, the thing that drew you. Um, Lee Goldman recruited me. Lee Goldman was a former chair of medicine here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lee convinced uh, Jay Nadell, who was the acting director of the pulmonary division, to, to take, a, take a risk on me. And was it a, by that time, were you still a risk? No, I wasn't. I, I wouldn't think so. It sounds like you've done incredibly well. I, right? I did super well. Yeah. Um, and I even wore the bow tie, played the part. Oh, you did the whole thing, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen pictures of you with the bow tie. And I assume you ditched it once you got here, right? You know, uh, I try to wear my ties here, and I, I was very adamant about wearing ties at San Francisco General. And um, th- within my pulmonary division, the peer pressure was too great, and they made fun of me, and they called me <laughs> Teflon Don, and, and so, Finally, I realized that, you know, I, I got a light. Although up. the chief at the pulmonary of John Murray wore bow ties quite often. But he's significantly older. And yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I still get mad when I see residents don't wear ties at San Francisco General. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, You're making me feel bad, but you don't have one either, I don't have so one I think either. we're okay. Yeah, I think we're okay. All right, so you come here, and um, uh, how'd your career play out compared to what you thought it was going to be? Um... Tumultuous, actually, uh, tumultuous, if you want me to be honest. Um, I mean, here I am, like a kid, naive kid with $1.2 million. And um, this is a while ago, by the way. That's that was $3 nine, million now or $4 million now, probably, if you do the math. Yeah. Uh, that that's was, a lot of money. That was 1998. And, um, you know, I found people that wanted to take, take that money from me. Um, and I found... Great people that wanted to help me. And really, when I got in trouble uh, and people wanted to take the money away from me, um, my mentor at the time, Dean Shepard, came to my rescue. And I've been forever grateful for that. Um, People have been tremendously supportive. Um, uh, There's a time that our study wasn't doing well because we were trying to recruit intact families, uh, two biologic parents and a child. And the divorce rate is really high. And so um, I talked to Dr. King, Thomas King, who was uh, chair of medicine in San Francisco General. And I was saying I was having problems and people were trying to steal my money and um, I not being able to recruit. And he said, why don't you talk to these folks? And it was wonderful. He introduced me to 
a guest speaker, Antonio Zueto out of uh, Texas, who's Hispanic, and uh, another person by the name of Moises Salman in Mexico City. And I was a, I was an, a fellow working in the intensive care unit, um, and I went down there to Mexico City and Puerto Rico, gave grand rounds, and said, you know, I'm young, but I'm eager. Can you help a brother out? Mm. And they did. And to recruit in Mexico was one twentieth the cost. To recruit in Puerto Rico was one tenth the cost. So I was able to take the remaining money I had and complete our study. So the biggest problem was actually being able to recruit yes. uh, subjects and patients for your for your studies, and that became easier to do in yeah. Puerto Rico and Mexico. And we had residual money to recruit out of um, out of Central General, and um, also. In smaller uh, clinics like La Clinica de la Raza in Oakland and all up and down the Bay Area. So talk a little about what you've learned from your research. What are the key findings that you set out to really help explain variations in care and disparities? And I mean, you're very clinically grounded as well. You're really trying to move the needle in terms of equity. So what are the, some of the key things that you found over the years that you think have, have helped? One of my most awesome experiences in medicine happened here on the 13th floor um, in the pulmonary function lab. I had a Caltrans worker who had an occupational injury. Um, obviously, you know, whether you or me, we would want to get disability benefits, and the insurance companies don't want to pay. So they sent him to UCSF for an independent third-party assessment. We did his lung function test, and in the United States... Up until now, there are only three standard references, white, black, and Mexican-American. And this person looked like Obama. And so, you know, I'm following the technician around, and there's a pull-down. Is he white, black, or Mexican? And the technician goes, oh, he's black. And I'm like, well, you don't know that. And I asked him, I said, what are you? And he goes, well, I'm half. And so that, that was... Incredible, because it depended if we compared them to whites, we would got the diagnosis wrong. If we compared them to blacks, we got the diagnosis wrong as well. Mm-hmm. Either way, I could make a decision that would have either led him to get benefits or not. And we have these clinical uh, standards in every form of medicine, whether it's for your GFR, your lung function, and at the time, I had already been doing ancestry testing before 23andMe came along. Uh, and so my colleagues and I said, well, what if we measured his genetic ancestry and included that in the equation? And we demonstrated that for African Americans or racially mixed populations, we could, we could improve the diagnosis of lung disease by as much as 15%. We published that in the New England Journal in 2010. We did the same thing in Mexicans. We demonstrated that there's a 10% error rate, so we can make the diagnosis more precise by 10%. We published that in the Journal of Science. And and that happened here. And I'll never forget that, um, uh, because that was a tremendous uh, clinical influence that now we had a lot of Me Too people trying to do the same thing, and that's what a lot of companies are working on now. Mm-hmm. I do also want to say, uh, in my early days, I want to say thank you to the Sandler Family Foundation because uh, they were based in Oakland and they're one of the biggest contributors to UCSF. And they saw me and there was I was just a young person and there's lots of people around them trying to get at them. And the Sandler said, uh, we would like to talk to that guy um, over there. And um, they, Herb Sandler and Marion Sandler said, you know, what you're doing is so important. We would like you to make San Francisco General your soapbox for you to preach to the world. What? And I've been forever grateful for their support for that. Yeah. No, you've been. <clears throat> Herb just passed away last year, really. Yes. Extraordinary person. Uh, how do you negotiate the politics and ethics of of disparities? And that you're really, f- in some ways, people sometimes talk about we should be completely colorblind and we have to treat everyone the same. And in some ways, your research says people actually are quite different, and it's actually in their DNA, and we need to understand that. And 
in order to treat them correctly. There may be certain drugs that work better in this person than that person, or the, the normals are not the normals. So it must be that that's trick. That must be a tricky space. It is for a lot of people, but not for me. Uh-huh. How come? Uh, number one, I'm Hispanic. I could tell you my ancestry. I've lived it. I've seen it, and um, I've seen it in my clinical practice. Um, that individual, the Caltrans worker, when he checked in at the registration downstairs, uh, some clerk made a decision about his race, mm-hmm. and he or she may not have had training in anthropology, but that information got put into his medical record and came up to the 13th floor, and I was making a life-death situation about him. Mm-hmm. There are about 100 drugs that have racial labels, and I brought a package insert, just in case. Um, everyone who met, gets a medication... If you run out of things to talk about, you're going to read a package insert? No, no. Uh, but it, this is a package insert for one of the number one asthma medications. Yeah. And it's the first thing we get when we get a medication. It's the first thing we throw away. Um, but if you read this one... And this is why you don't read it. <laughs> but if you read, this is for This asthma. is Times New Roman 2, I think, by the way, if you can't see it. It says if you're African-American and you take this medication, you've got an eightfold risk of dying. And there are um, about 100 medications right now. What is the med? This is CeraVit. So now mm-hmm. they have uh, Advir, which is a combination medication. Yeah. But there are about 100 medications. Carbamazepine is one of them. Uh, Bidil, or not Bidil, um, Clopidogrel is another one that have racial warnings. And I've taught genetics and pharmacogenetics here at UCSF for the last 14 years. It's just well known that genes vary by population, allele frequencies. And uh, in the case of Plavix, number one medication for cardiovascular disease and strokes, doesn't work in about 50% of Asians. And and it's just a fact. So you think we have to move to a world where your genetic information is sort of known to the system, and every diagnostic, therapeutic decision, normal range is somehow embedded in the computer. It sort of knows that and provides us decision support. I'm, I'm speaking for you, but tell, tell me how this plays out over the next 10 years as we get more and more sophisticated here. Um, I would like that, but I'm also pragmatic. I had a very wise chairman um, uh, tell me a couple, like a year ago, uh, that we need to have a... Um, financial impact. We need to prove that it's... Co- Could I say that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to prove that it's cost-effective. Okay. Uh, so that might be a pipe dream to include genetics in every test that we do. Um, but we're beginning to see it. In every cancer diagnosis, there's a genetic test done. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some miracles. A young woman that came to my class with uh, in her 30s with stage four metastatic lung cancer, got genetically tested, and walked out clean. Completely resolved. So, so I, you think I, cancer I, is sort of the early case where we're seeing yeah. what precision medicine will ultimately look like for the rest of, yes. uh, for the rest of us. Um, I think that's probably right. Um, and the, the, the cost effectiveness is on certain things. I think we were talking about sort of changing the normal range yeah. for certain tests. But I think for the issues of once we decide that drug A works better than drug B in this particular patient population, I think that's more a matter of you know, getting through all the pipeline. And then I'm struggling with how we educate clinicians or provide clinicians with the information. I mean, I can remember you treat high blood pressure this way with patients, but if they're over 60, you do it that way. But you start throwing in if they have this genetic signature, they need to use drug C. Uh, there's no human clinician that can possibly remember that, so it really raises the stakes in terms of clinical decision support. You know, you, you mentioned about how do you navigate the race, ethnicity, hot-button topic, and I, I do want to put a plug-in for UCSF here because I don't think I could have done any of this work at Harvard or, or UCSF. Um, or at Stanford. Is it? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. at Stanford. I'll correct you when you're... Um, <laughs> and when when we did, you know, we published in the New England Journal in Science and Nature and uh, we went 0 and 11 for R01 funding, and we took on the NIH and uh, demonstrated that there are biases in the review process. And I knew that those our publication was going to potentially jeopardize my colleagues here at UCSF that were NIH dependent. And um, I got threatened by the NIH. Um, uh, one pro, one uh, institute director called me. 
um, asking me to withdraw the paper. The head of the scientific review, Center for Scientific Review called me, um, asking me to withdraw, and I got cold feet. And um, I'm very grateful for this. I went to Sam Hallgood. Sam said, Sam's the chancellor. I, I got your back. Mm -hmm. We got your back. I talked to Dr. King. He goes, I got your back. I talked to my department chair. She said, I got your back. I went to Joe Guglielmo, the dean of school of pharmacy, gave me a hug. He said, just do what you do. We great. got your back. Great. That's a great story. And, and I, I am very grateful for that. And I'll never forget that. And you were taking on the NIH because you had demonstrated that the review process was biased around who the investigator was or around the topic or both? Um, both. Uh -huh. So um, we demonstrated there's a law that was put into effect in 1994 requiring inclusion of women and minorities in all clinical federally funded research. And we demonstrated over the last 20 years that less than 4.5% of all research related to lung disease included minority populations. We demonstrated that over the last 30 years, if you're an African-American investigator, you have a 10% a priori lower likelihood of being funded. Mm. If you're Asian, you had a 6% lower likelihood of being funded over 30 years. So we published that in PLOS Medicine. Um, Science scooped it, scooped PLOS, and Nature scooped it, and they wrote editorials. And uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee picked up on this and um, called me in her office to update her, and then she uh, subpoenaed Francis Collins into Congress to talk mm -hmm. about our paper. So I, I, I'm very proud uh, that UCSF supported me, and I'm very proud, uh, if I were to die today, that I moved the moral compass of science towards social justice. That's spectacular. I mean, <clears throat> just so people recognize, you know, UCSF gets 600, $650 million a year in funding from the NIH, so taking them on an issue like this is non-trivial, and the fact that all of the leadership rallied around you is actually quite impressive. Uh, tell us about the Primero study, speaking of the NIH. And so uh, we've been busy. Uh, I raised about $15 million in the last year. Um, one of them was for Primero. Primero means first in Spanish. It's The acronym stands for Puerto Rican Infant Metagenomic and Epidemiologic Study of Respiratory Outcomes. Uh, it's a birth cohort of 3,000 mothers and their newborn children in Puerto Rico, and we're going to longitudinally follow the children to look at the early origins of the development of asthma. Um, um, I think the NIH has good, good people there, so I don't want to make them vilify them, and I, I think they recognize the value of a birth cohort like the Framingham, but in children and in minorities in particular. Um, we might uh, start a collaboration with White Memorial in East L.A., to do a parallel study, uh, Mexicans, really trying to address this epidemiologic paradox of why asthma is so prevalent to Puerto Ricans, and despite all the risk factors, relatively has a low prevalence in Mexican populations. Okay. Uh, I want to throw it open in a second, but uh, I've had the privilege of visiting your lab, and I know you're very proud of the way you've organized your lab and the kind of people who work in your lab. Tell us about your lab and your philosophy about the lab? Well, uh, I grew up with all women, so I predominantly have a female-run lab. Um, um, I believe in loyalty, so my longest employee has been with me for 15 years. The second two, 14 years, 13 years, 12, 10. So there are very few labs where there's longevity. Um, we take all kinds. Um, and I believe that I have a responsibility to help those that I can. So I look for first-generation and low-income kids that would not get help otherwise. And very proud of that. We just had a student, first-generation, get a full ride to Michigan. Hmm. That's, that's worth about $500,000 right there. Um, recently, I had three African-American females. Uh, one was a pulmonologist. One was one's here, PharmD, PhD. One is a uh, PhD, probably the only African-American female statistical genetics person in the United States. I have a lot Latino uh, applied mathematician. Um, we have high school students, undergraduates. And when, when there's a quorum, when there's a safe space, uh, people come. And um, I just gave the keynote speech at Saknas in Hawaii. And I mentor kids all over the United States. 
Um, and I feel it's my responsibility because someone did it for me. Uh, I don't get paid a dime for this. Um, but I something I, I really uh, derive pleasure and joy from. It's obvious. It was really very impressive seeing seeing the lab and, and the diversity of the lab and how passionate they are about the work and about, about working with you. Uh, last question. Your picture is on the side of about every other vehicle in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it mission-raised, mission-driven? I think some, something like that. How does that feel when you see a bus go by and it's got your picture on it? Um, uh, I'm, I'm proud to be part of UCSF. I'm proud that I'm from the mission um, I feel that I'm part of something bigger than me, and, and I think I, really a lot of my work is shaped by the uh, UCSS history with the um, HIV-AIDS movement, mm-hmm. uh, the social activism around that, stuff that Paul Volberding did, um, and I worked on 5A. You know, AIDS patients died primarily of lung disease, or they did. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it's something to be very proud of. And when I was at Harvard, uh, Fauci came and the head of the, one of the NIH institutes. And I remember ACT UP, the political action group of the AIDS movement, really combined with UCSF scientists, worked together to really change the NIH and the FDA to fast-track drugs to set aside money that wouldn't take money away from breast cancer or other diseases. And, and it's a privilege to have a job where you can merge personal passion with academic rigor and really bend the moral compass of science towards social justice. And I, I only think that can be done at UCSF. That's great. And I'm proud of that. Great. Well, we're, we are proud of you. Uh, let's throw it open for, we have seven or eight minutes, see if anybody has any, any questions. So I think what you said about really that marriage between basic science and social justice is such an important space. And it also seemed to me like another message of what you were saying is that mentorship, representation, recruitment, that that that, that lens and having that sort of thread in your work is really what allowed you to push forward this, this idea. So on the heels of recruitment and as we move forward, how do you think about that piece? How do we improve um, and continue to mentor underrepresented trainees to try and really increase prevalence and presence in the basic science world? It's difficult. Um, The numbers have not changed from when I applied to medical school in 1990. It's still about 4.5% for Hispanics and less than 5% for African Americans. Um, I, I I can't change national policies, but uh, I'm part of the Robert Wood Johnson's Harold Amos program. Um, I volunteer my time there, and there we have a specific charge to identify top um, uh, physicians and who are doing basic science or applied science, um, and really support them. So. There are some things that I can do, but I, I can't take on the whole world. I gotta gotta feed a lab, and um, UCSF is uh, we're a tier one institution, and um, we have to publish top science. So uh, the other stuff is my side job. When when we're gonna have intern applicants start coming through, and soon, what are the messages that you think are are worthwhile giving people to make clear it's a supportive environment and you know the the goal to improve diversity is is real i mean i it's a particularly those of us who are come from less diverse backgrounds sort of how 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 do you get that message across in a way that's that works um i mean you're first to go to your first gen kid go to college yeah yeah and um you know i i identify a lot of those kids whether they're white, black, or blue, pink, or purple, or pink. Um, <clears throat> I think it has to come from the, the leadership. So um, we have a new program director here in the categorical program. Um, I was very impressed to learn that her major in college was African-American studies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's that sort of coaching. Um, it might, you're the department chair, but she's the one that's on the, in, the, in the trenches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think 
support from someone like her is going to be critical. Support from other department uh, division chiefs is going to be critical. Any other questions or, or thoughts? All right. You didn't ask about the Jewish house. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. We'll, we'll take this as the last, last one. <laughs> uh, you know, when I was in medical school, even though I went to Chinese school, I spoke Spanish, I had African-American coaches, uh, uh, there's a Jewish house at Stanford, and one of the students lost their visas like right before Labor Day. And they, they needed a warm body, and so they interviewed me, and uh, I didn't realize I was being interviewed. What, being interviewed to do what? To live in the house. To live in the house, okay. And uh, at the end of the interview, they said, would you like to live here? And I had already had a lease, and the school year was about to start, and I broke the lease, and, uh, <laughs> and I moved in for two years as the Shabbos boy, so the guy who goes... <laughs> goes around on Friday nights, turns on and off the lights, but, right. uh, you know, just like Rebecca Berman's experience of being Jewish and then uh, African American studies, here I am, a Hispanic in an all-Jewish household and uh, I'm now the godfather of one of my roommates and we're good friends, Daniel Kraft okay. um, who's the chair of medicine at Singularity and uh, Lee Sanders, who's the chief of or the head of the pediatrics general peds at Stanford um, that was a really good experience. Um, if, if I look back and I, my whole life experiences, growing up with a dark-skinned mom who's Mexican, going to Chinese school, having African-American coaches, living in the Jewish house, it provided a unique lens on which I view medicine and science. And you know, now we're paying all these hundreds of thousands of dollars for cultural immersion programs or. Uh, you know, Spanish only or Cantonese only. I got all this for free. It's just cheaper to have people move in with each other, <laughs> yeah. right? It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. That is that, that is a cool experience. That that is uh, that is very cool. Well, we should quit there. Thank Esteban, you very much. Thank you. It was really really marvelous. Really thank you. It. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.